Hey everyone, I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calatrin. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HOP two three zero six zero five, and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HOP two three zero six zero five, and I really do recommend you give this product a try. And I'll talk to you next time. They were some of the most powerful men who've ever lived. They waged war, forged peace, and altered the fates of billions of people. And yet. They were just as human, just as flawed as you and me. They were the presidents of the United States, and they are the subjects of the history podcast, This American President. In each episode of This American President, we explore how flawed men have managed this awesome responsibility. To listen now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search This American President on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to the History of the Papacy podcast, a podcast about the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. Prepare yourself to step behind the ropes and leave the official tour of the story of the Popes and Christianity. I'm your host, Steve Guerra, and I thank you for joining me on this journey. You can find show notes, how to contact me, sign up for our mailing list, and how to support the history of the papacy by going to our website, a2zhistorypage.com. Two great ways to support the history of the papacy are leaving your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. And another really great way to support the history of the papacy is by going and joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash history of the papacy. Your support on Patreon goes a long, long way to help keep the history of the papacy sustainable for a long time in the future. There are four tiers of support on Patreon, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. Each of these tiers represents one of the traditional patriarchates of early Christianity. There are many great benefits to you for supporting the show on Patreon. You will receive early and advertisement-free content, bonus episodes, monthly book drawings, and most importantly, you will be included on the history of the papacy diptychs. In traditional Christianity, the diptychs are the lists of bishops commemorated in order of their precedence. 
The sooner you sign up on Patreon, the higher you'll be on the lists of the History of the Papacy Patrons. I want to send a very special thanks out today to Ride Air 67 who is our latest patron at the Antioch level on patreon.com forward slash history of the papacy. Thank you so much, Ride Air 67, for choosing to support the history of the papacy. Now let us commemorate the Patreon patrons on the history of the papacy diptychs. We have Roberto, Yorin, William B., Brian, Jeffrey, Christina, John, William A. And Judy at the Alexandria level. We have Doppel, Paul, Justin, Lana, John, Steve, and Sean, all of whom are magnificent at the Constantinople level and reaching that ultimate power and prestige, that of the Sea of Rome. We have Peter the Great, Alex the Great, Amma the Great, Frederick the Great, and Jeffrey the Great. And with that, here is the next piece of the mosaic of the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. Welcome back. I am really excited to talk with Professor Levi Roach about all things Normans. The Normans are the historical gift that keeps on giving. There are always more things to learn about this group of people that dominated Europe for centuries during the Middle Ages. Our guest today is Professor Levi Roach, who is author, an author and professor at the University of Exeter in the UK. He is the author of Empire of the Normans, Conquerors of Europe, and he will lead us through the rise, fall, and impact of the Normans. Now, why write a book about the Normans? What got you interested in the Normans? I first really got interested in the Normans and inspired to write a book about them because I think there's a real disjuncture between their really quite massive historical significance for the history of Europe, but even history beyond Europe, including parts of North Africa, the Middle East, and indeed the world, uh, and the degree to which they are present in more popular history and in more popular cultural references, which tends to be somewhat limited and, if if, if they're at all, uh, uh, focused very narrowly on the Norman conquest of England, 1066, the Battle of Hastings, which are certainly here in the UK, are, are kind of big markers of history, but leaves aside lots of other really important and interesting stuff. In the very broadest strokes, who are the Normans? So the Normans, by origin, are Vikings. So the name Normans comes from Northmen, the men from the north. And that's just one of uh, a few different terms that are used by contemporaries in Europe in the 8th and 9th centuries to discuss and describe Viking marauder. What happens is that a group of Vikings come and settle in what becomes Normandy, and indeed are settled there with agreement of the local um, French ruler, Charles the Simple. This is a sort of agreement that was not uncommon in the period, a kind of classic case of setting a thief to catch a thief. So if you've got problems with the Vikings, hire a few for yourself, settle them normally on some coastal lands that would otherwise be exposed, and let them deal with any other Vikings. So that's kind of how Normandy starts, is a settlement, agreed settlement, of Viking Northmen in northern France. But the key thing is this settlement survives. Other ones proved much more temporary. This one survives and thrives and becomes then a kind of permanent feature. And so the region they settle starts to become known as Northmandy, the area of the Northmen, and the inhabitants are known as Northmen. And that then simplifies to Normans. So that's how we kind of get this name 
uh, Norman. And the Normans were well aware of the Scandinavian heritage, as were their neighbours. This was something somewhat distinctive about them. They had come from across the seas, um, and they'd originally come as these kind of Viking forces. What was the character of the area of northern France that um, Gaul, that the Northmen settled into before the Northmen came to? Was it a fairly standard uh medieval European area? Was there anything special about that particular area that they settled in? No. So it was a fairly standard region of kind of north of France. France, particularly north of the Loire, we tend to characterize as often being quite similar in this period. And there was little to distinguish it from the other kinds of areas around there. One of the things that is important for their settlement is that it was an area under the influence of a chap called Robert of Neustria, who was the kind of second most powerful magnate in the kingdom after the king, but crucially was often a rival to Charles the Simple, was from a, a, a different um, uh, family. That in fact, his brother had previously been king himself. And so one of the things that Charles Simple is doing when he settles the Vikings there, the, the, the main priority is stop them raiding him and protect his own coastline. But another bonus from his perspective is cutting down the power and influence of Robert and gaining a new ally against him. And indeed, in years to come, the early Norman duchy supports the crown uh, a number of times, crucially, against uh, Robert. The Normans, the, the Vikings and the Scandinavians that came, how much of their character did they uh, keep or did they really integrate really quickly into the existing power structures and, and culture of that area? The long-term answer is that they integrate really quite thoroughly. So well before the Norman conquest of England in 1066, they have become Francophone, they have become Christian. All of that seems to happen largely within a few generations. But that doesn't mean it happens completely seamlessly. There are clear signs of tensions at times in early years. We hear of apostasy, that is, of uh, Normans going back to their pagan faith in some of those early years of revolts and the like. So it's not necessarily a smooth and inevitable process. Um, and while we do move eventually to them becoming quite thoroughly Francophone and French culturally, uh, there is good evidence from things like place names that a significant amount of Old Norse was spoken in early years. So they do make probably quite a big impact, but the long-term direction is towards uh, integration. Probably the biggest legacy is actually that memory that they themselves have kind of come over that I think is probably one of, not the only thing, but one of the things that then inspires them to try their hand at these ventures overseas that we start seeing then the 11th or 12th century. That's interesting. And I think that will definitely come to, uh, to become important. One thing that I always was interested in, though, how much, what was sort of the cultural situation of the of these uh, Scandinavians? Did they come with their wives and their children or did they marry into the existing uh, structures that were in families that were important in no northern France already? The short answer is we don't honestly know for certain. But there's probably a bit of both going on. So Normandy seems to be formed in the early 10th centuries, probably around 9-11 is the rough dating, but it's not a precise date there. Um, and all indications are that the force that settles, they've been a major army in previous years and had spent many, many years um, in northern France and prior to that in England. And so the group settling is almost certainly predominantly male. But some of these men will have had wives and children already back home in Scandinavia, and some of those almost certainly came over. So it's certainly not the case of a purely male army settling isolated from the homeland. They're not that far from Denmark and Norway, and most probably came from Denmark. 
So we are almost certainly looking at a situation in which men outnumbered women. And there is some good early evidence of intermarriage. So, for example, the first Duke Rollo is said to have had a Christian wife, um, almost certainly from somewhere in France, or if not that, the British Isles. Um, and he almost certainly was not alone, but that doesn't mean that that was what everyone was doing. There will have been a bit of a mix, but that probably was one of those drivers for integration in terms of what you may be getting at there, because um, obviously in those kinds of scenarios, that's where we start seeing bilingualism emerge. And there's good evidence of uh, fairly early on bilingualism of uh, uh, figures as having two names, maybe a, a Viking Norse name and then also a French name. Were, the, were some of these Vikings, were they keeping connections and uh, even land back in Denmark? Because in the grand scheme of things, Denmark's a stone's throw from where they settled. Or was it considered a stone's throw back then? I think not quite a stone's throw, but obviously the Vikings, one of their distinct features is that they are seaborne and are, are very good seamen. So they certainly do have connections back. I don't think there's any good secure evidence for them maintaining significant lands, but that doesn't mean they didn't maintain interest. And there is good evidence of continued contacts. And so um, the main, there's this initial force that settles in around 9-11, but we know of subsequent waves of settlement, but that it wouldn't have just all happened overnight. And we know of other groups that go to Normandy and join in around the 940s and 950s, even as late as that. And I'd say up to about shortly after the year 1000, this strong connection is maintained and at least pockets of Old Norse continue to be spoken in Norman. The last clear example we have of Scandinavian forces kind of coming over um, and fighting in Normandy on the side of at least the Duke or uh, some of his associates comes from, I believe, 1015. Thereafter, they do start to very much go their own waves. And although there's this awareness of this heritage, there's no particular evidence of closer cooperation. But in earlier years, there absolutely is. And indeed, there's good evidence that some of the Viking bands that in the late 10th, early 11th centuries are plaguing England's coast are stopping off in Norman ports because they know they can have, you know, they're secured a warm welcome there by their you know, fellow kinsmen. Steve here again. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network, featuring great shows like Chris Mowery's Vlogging Through History and many other great podcasts. Go over to Parthenon Podcast to learn more. And now, here's a quick word from our sponsors. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform. What was going on in Normandy after the, the Scandinavians had settled that... Fairly soon afterwards, they go out for what you might call new business opportunities all over Europe. Very shortly after they had settled, were things not going well in Normandy? What were some of the forces going on? I think actually, it's, if anything, the reverse, things are going very well in Normandy. By that point, they've really consolidated a really powerful uh, uh, territorial principality, as we often call these things, a, a, a largely autonomous polity that only nominally acknowledges the French king as overlord. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, by the 1050s, 1060s, 
the then Duke William, later William the Conqueror, is one of the leading magnates in all of France. He's twice defeated the King of France in battle. He's defeated the Counts of Anjou, his nearest, most powerful neighbors. He's married into the family of the Counts of Flanders, the other major forces. So actually, he's one of about the kind of leading four or five people in all of northern France. And so it's kind of natural to then start looking further afield. Other things that certainly are playing into this, it is a period of growing population. So it's not probably primarily population pressure that it's not they've completely run out of land, but for aristocrats looking to expand, to make a fortune, it's very tempting to go further afield. And this certainly is a period where we start seeing this much more widely across Western Europe, where we see out of a kind of core area around France and parts of Germany, then aristocracies going and settling abroad and expanding their domains via um, uh, either invitation or often violent conquest. But Normans are kind of actually in the forefront of this movement, are, are amongst the early movers. And that's where also I do suspect that part of the motive, though not the only one, is this awareness that we came over here and won our fortune in Normandy. So when we see prospects elsewhere in the British Isles, in southern Italy, why not? We've done it once before. We can do it again. And so they do. In the modern parlance, you might say they had a growth mindset, that there was opportunities, so just take them. Yes, in that kind of sense. And then in the sense that they're already, uh, if you will, to use a kind of uh, the modern parlance, a colonial presence at some level in France, uh, and that therefore they can kind of replicate this. And yes, as you say, the, the, once you've had a bit of growth, once you've had a bit of success, then uh, you get this sense that nothing succeeds like success in that. And there is clearly a sense also of rivalry driving some of this as well, of one one-upmanship wanting to better their fathers, previous generations, one another. William the Conqueror, one of our main sources for his reign, says that one of his motives in conquering England was that he'd heard of the successes of his fellow kinsmen in southern Italy, and particularly a chap called Robert Giscard, who was leading them there, who was from a very kind of middling to low aristocratic family. And he said it would be a dishonor if a man of such lower birth were to exceed me in feet. Uh, and I think that takes us to our, whether or not the tale is entirely true, we don't know, but it certainly takes us to the mentality of the period of, of seeing what others are doing and wanting to go one butter, build it bigger, conquer more, expand further. That was one thing that I read in your book that really stuck with me is that it was almost a jealousy of the um, of the uh, Duke William the Conqueror to go to England because he saw that these lower rank people are uh, making so much money and profits and land, and he wanted a part of the action. Exactly, and I think that this really is one of those kinds of ones of being aware of what your ancestors have done, being aware of what other people are doing, and then looking to replicate it, and that's why practically in the moment Williams conquered England, his own magnates start attacking, invading places like Wales. Uh, and William doesn't really care about Wales. He's, he, he's got bigger fish to fry. He's happy to let them go. But for them, it's a case of we've you know, whetted our appetite. And look, if we want to expand further, that's where the land is. That's where the prospects lie. Um, One of um, the, the focus of uh, the, my podcast and then the, the current series we're in is in southern Italy and uh, Sicily, North Africa. And I'm wondering, what was the this family and this group of people that uh, of Normans who went to Italy? Maybe you can set them up a little bit for us and their time period and their cultural situation their What was driving them? Yeah. So one of the interesting features of, of Norman expansion is that actually the first major Norman conquests aren't in the British Isles. The Norman conquest of England in 1066 comes after Norman groups have started colonizing and settling southern Italy. 
Now, the origins of this and the beginnings of it are a little bit obscure, but we suspect that the Normans first come in contact with southern Italy, initially as pilgrims, probably to the Holy Land. The pilgrimage is becoming much more popular to uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land in this period. And your natural routes from Normandy would take you through Italy. Perhaps the easiest way would have been to um, go to Italy overland and then take a boat from there. And so that's almost certainly how they're initially coming in contact with southern Italy, either that or taking the boat from southern France. But either route would take you past southern Italy. And an obvious staging point as well there would be places like Rome itself, which is a popular center of pilgrimage in the Middle Ages, or also there's the shrine of the Archangel at Monte Gargano in southern Italy that's a very popular pilgrimage destination. And we know that the cult of the Archangel is very popular in Normandy, a place like Mont Saint-Michel, one of the great Norman monasteries, is a good uh, uh, indication of this. So it seems very likely that this is how Normans are initially coming in contact with these regions. Our earliest accounts say this, that the Normans are coming to southern Italy as pilgrims. And according to these very earliest accounts, what happens is one of these groups is in fact coming back from the Holy Land, um, and a city is struggling there under attack from uh, Muslim forces, because Sicily is held um, uh, by an Islamic uh, Amaret at the time. Uh, and so they ask for the Normans for their assistance. The Normans say, well, we're pilgrims, we don't have any you know, weapons with us. And they say, no, 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 we're, no problems, we'll give you the weapons, we need you to deal with the uh, Muslims. And they say, okay, fine, give us the weapons and we will. And they do so, and everyone's extremely pleased. It's in Salerno, and they all thank them and say, oh, would you please stay? And they say, no, no, we've got to go back home. But tell you what, we'll send some of our friends down south. And according to that tale, that's kind of the start of the Norman presence. Things probably didn't quite happen as simply as that, but it does seem likely that that's how initially Normandy come, Normans come in contact with southern Italy. And it seems quite plausible that out of those contexts then comes an awareness that southern Italy is very politically fragmented at this time. So Sicily is under Islamic rule. Parts of the south and particularly southeast are still under the Byzantine Empire, that is the old Eastern Roman Empire. There are also Lombard, so-called Lombard principalities, local native dynasties, but multiple ones of those. So it's very politically divided, which is kind of a perfect world for mercenaries. And that's really how they then come in and start plying their trade. So initially, they're fighting on behalf of some of the uh, Lombard princes pretty soon. Some of them start being hired by the Byzantines as well. They'll fight for anybody who's willing to pay them. And then at a certain point, they reach a critical mass where they decide, hey, why don't we fight for ourselves? Everyone here is divided. Politically speaking, there isn't you know, nobody that's especially powerful. There's something of a power vacuum starting to emerge, particularly as the Byzantine Empire itself starts to weaken. And so they kind of rush into this um, uh, and end up founding the beginnings of a, a strong uh, political entity there. And the leading figures there are, uh, are for the Normans were kind of elected amongst themselves, because these are just a mercenary group, but they elect as leaders. Um, the first one is a chap called William Ironarm, and it's then his brothers and half-brothers, all of whom are from this family called the Hope, who end up becoming the rulers of the uh, southern Italian Normans, and then eventually founding what is the royal dynasty of the Kingdom of Sicily. Would you call this colonizing, per se? Is that the right term, do you think, to use? Possibly not in southern Italy, because southern Italy, the Normans go to different places in different ways. And that's one of the interesting features. There are similarities in many of the places they go to. They're often invited in as mercenaries initially, then kind of they find a toehold and expand. But certainly in southern Italy, they're only ever, even in areas where they settle most densely, a minority. They've come partly at invitation and are initially quite closely allied with local Lombard forces. So we're dealing more perhaps with political opportunism and the creation of a new political entity. But unlike, say, in England, where we have evidence of a sometimes quite stark ethnic division, in southern Italy, there's awareness that the Normans are distinct. They're Francophone and things like that. 
Um, but there seems to be a respect for the local population, a desire to integrate into local aristocratic families. And so Robert Giscard, who is um, of that Hauteville line and becomes the kind of dynastic founder, really, um, uh, and the most important of those early uh, uh, counts and dukes, Robert Giscard marries uh, a woman called Sigalgaita, who is a local princess. And so his own children and heirs, he gives them good Norman names, good French names like Roger, but they are all, in fact, half Southern Italian. And then that becomes the kind of model. They're half Lombard. Uh, and so there's this very clear desire to co-opt the local aristocracy and an awareness that success is only going to work if you work with the grain in that respect. And that, in terms of that, then, Norman conquest in Southern Italy is really very different from the experience in England, where it is much more chauvinistic, where there is quite a stark distinction between incoming Normans and the local English population, and where, at least in the early years, the upper echelons are exclusively for the Normans. And there, I think, terms like colonial and colonizing are, are entirely appropriate with all of the kind of connotations that come with. What was the story of the Hauteville's as, uh, going back into Normandy? Did they have a mythology that they were Vikings or Normans in any way, or did they were they thoroughly uh, uh, Francophones and uh, French? So they're thoroughly Francophone in terms of language and culturally speaking, but they're very aware of that Viking pedigree. And early sources from uh, uh, in and around their courts in southern Italy describe their descent from Danes and from Vikings. So they're very, very aware of that. And again, as I say, I think this is one of the things that spurs them and others to think, why not? Yes, we can do this. And one of the crucial things for the Hopevilles is because they're not very super prominent aristocrats in Normandy. They're kind of middling to lower lower aristocracy. But is that they are all the sons um, of a father who's had two marriages and many, many sons. And the whole one of the clear things is if they stay in Normandy, they all fa face impoverishment uh, because of partible inheritance and traditions there. So the vast majority of his sons from both marriages go to southern Italy and not all at once. Some of the younger ones go after they hear of the successes of the elder ones. And when they go, they sometimes work together a bit, but they're also very much as mentioned earlier in the context of other expansion, rivals as well for greatness. They're also kind of spurring each other on, um, wanting to exceed one another. Uh, and the two that end up becoming those archetypal ones, let's say Robert Giscard, who's kind of the founder figure, but the other key one is his younger full brother, uh, Roger, who becomes Roger of Sicily. And again, Roger gets given Sicily effectively as his own independent uh, uh, fiefdom, precisely because otherwise he doesn't have a stake in these conquests, and they there end up becoming arguments between him and his brother. Because look, I'm doing all the hard work, and what do I gain if I conquer these lands? They go to you. And so one of the things uh, uh, Robert Guiscard does to make Roger happy is to say, "Fine, Sicily can be all yours. Sicily, which conveniently they haven't conquered yet, so go ahead and conquer it, and it'll be yours." The the situation I think we always get in the common view is that. The the Crusades and all of these things were led by sons who weren't going to get land. But that's not quite true, is it? That It's more like you said, it was their inheritance. They just weren't going to get great. They were going to get some land back home. It just wasn't enough. Exactly. And so, yes, there's the old idea that the Crusades are all being driven by younger sons who, who were going to be edged out of inheritance back at home. And that we now know really isn't true in most cases. Not to say in some individual cases it isn't true, but many prominent Crusaders were elder sons. And indeed... Um, William Ironarm, the first of that Hauteville line to be prominent in Normandy, is an elder son. He's the eldest of the lot. So it's not just the kind of younger ones going off, but rather it is more looking around and saying there isn't that much for me here, or certainly not as good as I could hypothetically get. And as soon as then there's others start seeing that success, that again perhaps takes us back to some of that growth mentality, if you will, but others then not wanting to be happy with 
increasing impoverishment at home, why not risk more to gain more? What was the political situation going on in southern Italy? You you mentioned the Byzantines and the Lombards. They were fractured, but what was what was maybe the status quo before these uh, Normans get to southern Italy? Divided, often quite a bit of localized conflict, but not huge shifts politically. So things were probably, I, I think one could say, relatively stable in, in the grand scheme of things, and it's mostly a matter of localized conquest. And what really then destabilizes them in a big way, in fact, is the Normans themselves fighting on all sides. And then they're aided when we come into the kind of, they start arriving in the early 11th century, really get going in the kind of 1040s. By the 1060s, 70s, they're then aided massively by the fact that the Byzantines are being attacked by the Seljuk Turks and are kind of entering what's starting to look like maybe terminal decline. So the Byzantines suddenly now have bigger fish to fry in the Middle East. And Southern Italy is amongst in terms of ranking their priorities as territories is pretty much last. So as soon as they've got difficulties elsewhere, um, uh, they don't have the time, money uh, uh, to expend on trying to keep Southern Italy. So that, so that really helps as well create a bit of that power vacuum into which the Normans can then rush. Uh, also, the Muslims in Spain or in uh, Sicily, rather, they seem to be a little bit past their peak at this point. Were they weakening? Yes, they're not on the front foot. And crucially, the, the local Islamic Amirate there has seen a division and there's infighting between two different groups there. And indeed, it's an invitation. It's at, the norms are invited over to take one side, um, to take the losing side. So perhaps not surprisingly in terms of that. And so they're able to use that again, as a leverage point to come over. Uh, but then, yeah, once they arrive, it's very clear that they're not they're not fighting to reinstall a different uh, army or they're, they're fighting for themselves. But yes, that's another crucial part of the picture is the Islamic power, which is the other potential big power alongside the Byzantines is being uh, divided as well. And so it's kind of, in a sense, ripe for picking. Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. Do you know how uh, in Sicily, was it, had it become very uh, Islamified or was it still a patchwork of Byzantines and Catholics and, all, you know, everybody mixed together or had it become a little bit more homogenized than maybe other parts of Italy at that point, the uh, southern Italy? So it remained very much a patchwork, but the distinctive feature was having um, a Muslim population as well. There isn't an area where there's not been any Muslim conquest. So what we have in Sicily, and we don't, if we're being completely honest with this, know the exact proportions in terms of you know what was maybe the majority population, but your big groups as of the time when the Normans conquered Sicily are Greek Rite, i.e. what we would later call Orthodox, and are Muslim. Those are your main groups. There are some Latin Rite Christians there, but they're very much, i.e. Catholics, but they're very, very much the minority. That's what the Normans are, and the direction of travel then comes towards that. But even under Norman rule in the early years, they're not tipping, rocking the boat, because again, they need to work with the grain. They're a relatively small minority. Um, the Greek or the, the Greek Rite population are very happy to see them as fellow Christians, but the Muslim population, provided they're allowed to continue practicing their faith, and the Normans very much copy the Muslims in reverse in terms of that, they're happy to allow them to do so, don't have a major problem with them in, a, in the short term. So the initial impetus is very much towards coexistence um, and towards what we might call pragmatic toleration. It wasn't kind of, you know, being 
uh, what we might consider, you know, a conscious valuing uh, of, of these things as, as one might see in the modern world. But there was certainly a high level of pragmatic toleration of uh, religious, ethnic, and other um, and linguistic difference, and that that remained the case for quite some time. We only start seeing real pressure to convert um, is starting in the late 12th and then into the 13th century. So much, much later before we start seeing real pressures on the Muslim population there. That does eventually come, but a long time. What was the Pope's position in all of this? There's some interesting stories about uh, that you share in your book about the interactions between these Normans and the Popes. Yeah, so one of the things the Normans clearly see themselves as kind of set up by destiny, many of these Norman groups. And, and once they're successful, of course, that confirms that sense. Um, but in terms of that as well, they, they they often see this in at least uh, partially in religious terms. So William the Conqueror coming over to England, seeks papal support, sees this as a punishment on the English for their sordid ways. Likewise, in southern Italy, they're very keen to play out this element. On the one hand, that they're bringing the Latin rite to areas that are otherwise Greek right? They're not getting rid of the Orthodox, but they're establishing good Catholic bishoprics as well, which of course the Pope is very pleased by. Uh, but most crucially, they're also taking back territory from the Muslims. They're very happy to play this up, even at the same time as in practical terms, they're then happily accommodating the local Muslim population. So they're very keen to get papal support because that provides them with an important imprimatur for their conquest. And also they're you know, their overall legitimacy. These are really, they're the new kids on the block. They're, they're, they're not of long dynasties and things like that. Having the Pope saying, hey, yes, you can do this. We we endorse this. And so their invasion of Sicily is crucially papally endorsed, is in the context of an alliance with the Popes uh, that is very much with an eye to the fact that the Popes know that this is a, an area of Muslim rule and would much rather, even if there continues to be a Muslim population, for it to be under Christian um, and thereafter, certainly policy and otherwise is, is dictating it a move ever more towards Latin Rite Christians. So although Muslim populations are allowed to continue worshipping as they did previously, to be a leading figure in government or a royal advisor, you have to convert. And there are, in fact, some prominent Muslim converts who then later end up advising them, but crucially, they're converts. Uh, and that, that does become an important part of the picture. This is a hugely important time in history. If any, you learn the major goalposts, this is the time of the East-West Schism is right at about this time, and the Crusades are, the official First Crusade gets launched at more or less this time. Were they just in the right place at the right time, or were, those, was, were the Normans at, uh, involved at all in kicking any of these major things off? So I think they're playing, actually, uh, as you hint at there, actually a crucial moment in kicking some of these things off. So one of the things that's been noted is the First Crusade comes relatively shortly after the Norman conquest of both southern Italy and of England. And indeed, most of the leading figures of that crusade are related to the Normans. Many of them are Normans themselves. So Robert Curthose, the son of William the Conqueror, is one of the ones who goes on crusade. Um, Otto of Bahia dies en route, but uh, the William the Conqueror's half-brother takes the cross and dies on his way to the Holy Land. His son-in-law, Stephen of Blois, is one of the leading crusaders. Indeed, is probably the most prominent French magnate to go on crusade. But there's also more indirect ties. So um, uh, uh, Raymond, for example, um, from southern France, he's related by marriage to the Sicilian Normans. And so it's been suggested recently, I think quite persuasively, that one of the things that motivates them, by no means the only one, um, but one of the important pieces of the puzzle, is these are all people who've recently seen how Normans and leading Francophone magnates can up sticks, move significant distances in some cases, and conquer great swathes of land seemingly against the odds. So when the Pope says, hey, want to go to the Middle East, reconquer the Holy Land, instead of sort of laughing and saying, 
No thanks, mate, they say. Yeah, why not? And in a sense, there's already that trajectory of those earlier Norman Conquests as well being done with papal backing, not being in origin the Pope's idea. But again, there's already been that principle and undertones of elements of holy war in some of those conquests. So in a number of respects, the Crusades are uh, a natural development of earlier Norman enterprise. Now, it is a crucial development. It's another step beyond what the Normans were in previously, but it probably isn't possible or thinkable without the earlier Norman uh, uh, conquest. The, the Normans, they ultimately set up the Kingdom of Sicily. And isn't that more or less the same Kingdom of Sicily with some changes that goes all the way into the 1860s? Yes. So they end up creating these political entities like that, that have such a long legacy. They also end up uh, giving us a number of the Scottish ruling dynasties. So like the Stuarts are of Norman descent, um, as were the Bruces and the Balliols. But yes, the, the Kingdom of Sicily ends up becoming one of these crucial features. The dynasties change over time, as often with these political entities, but as, as an entity, the Kingdom of Sicily is incredibly long-lived and, and has a really major impact. And indeed, if we're thinking also of, you know, your point there about this being a crucial moment in terms of the future of these regions, it's Norman activity and their conquest of Sicily that ensures that Sicily, for example, culturally becomes part of Europe rather than North Africa. Palermo, the capital of Sicily, is closer geographically to North Africa than it is to Rome. And it's only the fact that the Normans have taken it and that it now constitutes part of Italy that makes us think that it should naturally face towards Europe rather than towards Africa. Did the later uh, leaders of the Kingdom of Sicily throughout the Middle Ages and even into the modern period, did they think that they, did they have a mythology that they were Normans or what did that sort of get washed away over time? In that case, that seems to get washed away over time, probably in part because they are a minority presence there. And one of the other things that ends up complicating Norman expansion after they've conquered Normandy itself is the question of who are the natural heirs of Normandy, who get to call themselves Normans. Is it Normans abroad or are they the Normans still resident in Normandy? And this becomes particularly acute once, for example, we have um, uh, the French kingdom that has then taken and directly conquered Normandy in 1204, which means that, for example, the Normans in England, Normans now starts to mean kind of garden variety Frenchmen, people from northern France, rather than Francophone aristocrats who are based in the Kingdom of England. So no, we start seeing these various different uh, uh, Norman polities starting to go their own way, particularly over the course of the 12th century, starting to identify as Sicilians, Calabrian, Apulian in the case of southern Italy, starting to identify as English in England, even though they're Francophone, that's one of the crucial things. So you'll have people in French verse celebrating how they are Anglais, uh, which may seem completely counterintuitive to us, makes perfect sense in their context, not least since also languages change and we start getting a distinction between the dialect they're speaking in England and in Normandy. So uh, a bit like, you know, the UK to the US, they become separated by a shared language. <laughs> And maybe as our, our last little thing, because I, th this was another piece of Norman history that I found fascinating, was the Normans in North Africa. And it's certainly something you don't often associate. I think most of what the Normans, as you really think of 1066 and in England, but this this aspect of the Normans in North Africa, what can you share about that? Yeah, so it's an offshoot of the Sicilian kingdom they've created. But as you say, I think it's one of my favorite episodes as well, because it doesn't normally get into the history books, partly because almost it's it's a false start. It's a failure, if you will. Um, but it wasn't necessarily inevitably so. So just as Sicily has been before the Normans conquered, part of that North African and Middle Eastern Islamic world and been part of that orbit, when the Normans conquer it, 
that they inherit and maintain close trading links and political links to the powers in North Africa and this region known the um, Islamic province of Ifriqiya. And initially, those are fairly cordial. They maintain peace. They, they do well out of the trade, not least since uh, North Africa, by this point, is dependent upon grain supplies from Sicily. So they have a good financial interest in this. But when opportunity arises in the 1140s, 1130s and the 1140s, they go in initially to prop up an ally, as it were, but clearly using that as a pretense and then indeed set up uh, uh, their own stall there and integrate North Africa into the kingdom of Roger II of Sicily, who's the first of this line who started to call himself king, make himself his own dynasty. So he's the real founder, although the origins of the, the kingdom lie earlier. Um, and so this is one of the, his last points of expansion, but they mint coinage in his name with good Islamic titles and so on, and are there for a good kind of 10, 15 years. And what happens, though, is that Roger dies. And in the resulting upheaval happens at a crucial moment where then other forces in North Africa are gathering in strength, such as the Almohads, and that ends up kind of snuffing out this uh, early presence. But it could easily have been different for the same reason, as mentioned earlier, Palermo is not actually that far from the North African coast, from Madia, the traditional capital of that North African province. There's no reason why some of those regions couldn't have been integrated into a southern Italian orbit, um, certainly for much longer. Yeah, that would have been really a, an interesting counterfactual to think about if that had happened. I think to wrap up today, you've clearly done so much research into this topic. What's maybe something that you learned about the Normans through all your research? That's something that when you have friends over, you have to share this one story about the Normans or uh, family members. You have to something that's just a really interesting factor story about the Normans that really stuck with you. I think there's quite a few fun things, but the one that perhaps particularly being based here in the UK that I like is to point out to people that the cathedrals in England at present, all of the major cathedrals, none of them have any pre-Norman fabric at all in terms of the buildings, yet the vast majority have at least elements of Norman construction. And indeed, every cathedral and every major monastery in England was rebuilt or relocated, sometimes both and sometimes more than once within 50 years of the Norman conquest in 1066, which is absolutely extraordinary. A building boom, a, a church building boom like that was not seen anywhere else with that kind of short intensity in Europe at all. Um, and so I think that that neatly encapsulates this uh, for the Normans. And if you look at the progression, almost every one of those churches was bigger than the last one as well. So they're constantly building not only newer, but bigger and better. Yeah, isn't it? Um, from the bit that I've looked into that, the only Anglo-Saxon churches that are still really around are small parish churches. There's nothing significant Anglo-Saxon uh, architecture left. Precisely. It's actually really hard. If you come to England and want to see Anglo-Saxon churches, it's really tough. There are a few really you know, impressive ones. But not many at all, because they were fairly small and they were so thoroughly rebuilt, the entire landscape reconfigured. Um, and so, yeah, that stands out just completely. Elsewhere in Europe, you tend to see a kind of hodgepodge of periods and times. But the pre-conquest fabric of the church is almost impossible for us to see and really hard to comprehend, whereas the Norman one is, is just everywhere. Most English cathedrals are at least partly Norman Romanesque in construction, and many are pretty thoroughly placed like Durham. You know, it hasn't changed much since built by the Normans. It really does seem that England is 
normanness is completely integrated into the fabric, even though it might not be the most popular thing to think about, but it's, it's the be the the language that we're speaking right now and so many aspects of Englishness is has a huge thread of Norman in it. Yes, absolutely. This, this really is a kind of pivotal moment for what's happening with England as a kingdom, for its cultural orientation, and in all sorts of other respects, as you say, that it leaves this really, really strong um, and lasting legacy. Um, and indeed, the re complete replacement of the elite that the British Isles have never seen such a complete replacement of a ruling elite ever before or after. The Normans come in, and within a generation, the aristocracy has changed almost entirely been almost completely replaced and the language has changed cultural assumptions building soon follow well, i want to thank you so much for your time people should definitely check out your book uh because we didn't even touch on the english part of this at all or the scottish part and there's i mean we could probably talk for another two hours about that i i really uh thank you so much for your time and um you're always welcome to come back on to talk more about the Normans. I, I can't get enough of them. Perfect. Thanks for having me on.